If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. This is Everything is Personal with Len May. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, as always, welcome to Everything is Personal with my wonderful co-host, Mr. John Small. Oh, thank you. Get, a, thank you. get an applause. An yeah. applause today. It's wonderful. Um, thank you. Applause. Thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited about our guest today. I want to introduce Dr. Michelle Wiener, and I can give a whole overview, the board certified and pain manager and all that stuff. But I'll tell you one thing from personal experience, uh, there is a lot of cannabis and endocannabinoid system doctors that I meet everywhere throughout the world, my travels, and they really know very little. They just prescribe or recommend or suggest cannabis. They don't really understand how cannabis works within the body. And I, first of all, Michelle's a badass. We've uh, done the panels and we've talked to, at different events and uh, uh, we've uh, had business interaction before. So I can, from a personal standpoint, I can assure you that uh, Michelle really knows what she's talking about when it comes to the endocannabinoid system. So without further ado, there's Dr. Michelle Wiener. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So can you do a much better job than, than me telling people a little bit about yourself and, and your background? I am originally from New York and I always very athletic, very into nutrition. And, you know, I decided to become a physician. I went to university of Florida. So I'm a Gator. And then that's kind of when I became a Floridian and, um, you know, very into health and wellness always. And I decided to study physical medicine and rehabilitation, which really takes a look at the whole body. I am a DO. So I'm more holistic. I have my master's in public health. And I'm very interested in research and evidence-based science. And then I decided to do a pain fellowship because I wanted to be a little bit more interventional and really kind of look at the whole person. And I realized, you know, how many people are in pain. I have my grandma suffered from chronic pain and, and that kind of really like woke me up to how is medicine treating people in chronic pain? And I realized that I learned all these interventions, but you know, they were kind of band-aids or they were, you know, for acute pain and not really for chronic pain. And I'm in South Florida. I have all these patients on chronic opioids. That's just not how we're supposed to be treating patients in pain. And nobody was really addressing the emotional or what I call biopsychosocial component of pain and people are suffering and there's, you know, an emotional attachment or trauma or quality of life issues attached to that. So cannabis became legal four and a half years ago in 2016. I was one of the first uh, recommending physicians because, you know, I just knew that 
there had to be something to this. There has to be a reason why people were using it in other states. And I wanted to stop just doing what I learned as you know a textbook or whatever was FDA approved and really have relationships with my patients. That's kind of why I decided to be a doctor. I started integrating CBD and cannabis into the practice. And then I started doing my own research. Over 40% of our patients weaned off of opioids and another 40% decreased it significantly. And um, I realized that it's much more than, you know, one medication for one specific receptor. These, there's so many components to pain. Doctors are frustrated. We don't have that many tools, you know, and the tools that we have, it has to be covered by insurance and right. then there's a stigma behind it. And so I just started learning as much as I could. And based on the thousands of patients I have, it's very difficult to you know, say anything back to me because I realize how satisfied my patients are. I realize how satisfying my job is now. I was kind of frustrated where I was before. Now I treat patients, you know, not just for pain, but Parkinson's, cancer, epilepsy, a little bit of everything. Really just was curious. And I think that that curiosity is an important component being a physician. You know, we have to, we have to challenge what we've learned and we have to also evolve with the times. And if we see that, you know, all these people are on antidepressants and they're not working or all these people are on opioids, they still have 10 out of 10 pain. Why am I going to give you the same medication? So I learned about the endocannabinoid system. I trained a lot of the physicians in Florida. Uh, you know, I'm a huge advocate and I really kind of encourage the patient to like we talk about personalized medicine to, to right. take you know, inventory of themselves, to, to get to know their body a little bit better and to not just rely on the physician. Really my practice now, it's, it's much more personalized medicine and, and really integrating all, all different natural alternatives into everybody's daily life, promoting nutrition, lifestyle changes, not just you know using the cannabis plant, but there's much more to optimizing our endocannabinoid system. So that's, that's really how I, how I've evolved. And now I'm, I'm very interested in a lot of cannabis research. I have a good affiliation with University of Miami. We just got $75,000 from the state to, to research seniors. A lot of exciting stuff is going on. We're trying to get Florida to, uh, we already have like 470,000 patients actually. So, you know, things are moving around uh, nicely here. So we're very happy with our program here. I, what you said and all that, that I, I found like super, super important is the whole thing of being curious and healthcare professionals in general, whatever they were taught, not, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a healthcare professional, but I've dealt with enough people around the world where they had the blinders on. So this is what they learn in school. And this is what they think is the best way to approach a condition and everything else. The first thing they say is show me the double blind studies, show me the clinical trials. And I'm like, well, they don't exist for various reasons, and there are some that do exist, but what do you think about anecdotal research from thousands and thousands of people that is documented? And to be able to kind of have that curiosity and ask the right questions, I think that is really an anomaly in the medical profession. I'm, I'm hoping that more people will start gravitating towards that and using their curiosity and just asking questions and looking at the data like yourself and you know other healthcare professionals and you know companies like our cell, our company, and though they're collecting and showing people that this is really something that's effective. And, and I like what you said about the entire endocannabinoid system. We're not talking about just phytocannabinoids. We're talking about vitamins and supplements and nutrients and all these different things and are meant to 
empower somebody to take better control and have their relationship with their healthcare professional so they can work on these conditions uh, as preventative measures instead of just pinpointing to the hurts. Let me put a bandaid on that pain. How did you come up with uh, that approach? And are you also collaborating with other healthcare professionals that are looking at what you're doing and kind of influencing them to do the same? I actually read an amazing book called Good Chemistry uh, by Julie Holland. I'm sure you guys have heard of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she she really opened me up to consciousness and connection, right? And so cannabis, you know, people say it's a side effect to have the ability to alter your consciousness. And I think that, you know, when we use it for medicinal benefits, obviously, like I say to everybody, if you're using cannabis, even if it's recreational, it's probably for a medicinal benefit. And I've always been pretty, you know, understanding of that. But I, I like the patient to understand why they're using it. And before they choose to use it to kind of check in with their like, it's set and setting, you know, that's the most important thing, right? What I've realized over time is that some people's nervous system is just kind of heightened, let's say, you know, we call it central sensitization where you have one trauma or, or, you know, like I just had a patient today, she had mold toxicity, then she had a death in her family. And then, you know, she developed fibromyalgia, chronic migraines, chronic fatigue. So what happens is your, your body just doesn't really calm down and you have this excitotoxic state that you're living in where your tolerance to the alarm going off is is pretty low and those are the patients I kept seeing I kept seeing the fibromyalgia where nothing works but that's because we don't understand the mechanism and so I started doing my own research and you know that's kind of how I started incorporating ketamine assisted psychotherapy into the practice and cannabis assisted psychotherapy because there's a lot of other, you know, there's a lot of um, relationships with our opioid receptors and our cannabinoid receptors, but also the NMDA receptor, which is where ketamine works. So we have this wind-up phenomenon where things just kind of continue and they're spiraling and we're trying to stop it, but there's not much we can stop it with. So sometimes having a break in your day where you can really just rest, you know, people are stuck right now. And especially with the pandemic, there's a lot of, you know, isolation, lack of connection, and it's a time to kind of bridge that filter between, you know, your consciousness and your non-ordinary states of consciousness. And cannabis really can help people get there, can just take a break from the constant rumination and depression and the constant anxiety of the future. So it's amazing plant, obviously we know that, but it also affects so many different receptors. So it's getting the physicians educated on stopping thinking in that single receptor model, like serotonin is our happy neurotransmitter, you know, there's 16 serotonin receptors. We can do a lot with mapping the brain based on even the feelings that we have based on, you know, substances or, or certain techniques that allow us to get there. A question, I, and you're right, and I had this conversation with uh, Dr. Miri in, in Israel, uh, they call him Deddy, uh, for those of you that may have heard of him. Uh, he talked about, you know, cannabis, he was talking about apoptosis, specifically for cancer cells. And he was saying that in his lab, in his models, there's three receptor bindings. I know we're probably getting geeky and sciencey for our audience. I'm like, holy shit, what receptor like are you talking about? Yeah, but it's like, there's three receptor bindings that he saw in his lab for apoptosis. So you're absolutely right. There's multiple receptors, not just like, this is where, you know, the whole GW pharma model of let's single a molecule, let's single a, a receptor. You have this amazing plant. Why not utilize all the different components and look at the different combinations of the two? Uh, or of multiple components. Question for you that I had was about stigma. 
do you still see within the physician community and the general healthcare practitioner community, is there still like a pretty prevalent stigma associated with, uh, with cannabis, even though it's legal in, uh, you know, most of the country and in, in the state that you're operating in? It's, you know, first of all, there's, it's a cultural thing, I think, you know, being in South Florida, you know, we have a very diverse population here. Um, in terms of like the way that physicians look at it, of course, they always want the double blind placebo controlled clinical trials. And we all know about being a schedule one, how difficult that is to do. But I really do believe that physicians see their patients getting better. And so even though we are advancing with research, patients will just say they're, they're hesitant to tell their doctors that they're using cannabis. But when they do and they they give them that information, they say, well, you know, I had, I had a patient today who said who's been on three different sleep meds. And finally, the primary sent him to me. I'm like, if there's one thing cannabis can do, it can help you sleep. And if you're worried about the high, you're sleeping, you know, and there's actually so many ways of minimizing the high. And we always talk about the terpenes and how we can, you know, like the taming THC through so article, of course, using the, the terpenes and CBD to minimize the amount of THC people need. But I, I think that I'm not getting as much of a of an issue with stigma because I really think that people are realizing that Western medicine doesn't work for chronic conditions and that people who are on current medications, they don't want to escalate their dose. They actually just want to decrease their pharmaceuticals. Cannabis being so non-toxic, you know, being a pain doctor, it doesn't really... Uh, intimidate me because considering I am prescribing opioids anyway, I'm trying to really get people off of these medications. So I, I don't, at this point, I don't have such an issue with stigma. You know, I think that a lot of people are wondering where this is going. And if, you know, Florida becomes an adult use state, what's going to happen there? You know, we're, we've even started having the conversation about decriminalizing psilocybin in, in South Florida because we want to not repeat what happened with cannabis, which is so much, we're still doing a marijuana 101 lecture, you know, and it's four and a half years into it. And so we're trying to really educate people on the current research that MAPS has, for example, and get it out there now so that when something does happen, we don't have to start from square one. So stigma, stigma, I think, I think that, that there's certain cultures that, that are very, you know, to be honest, like the Hispanic population, you know, they, they're huge in, in South Florida, the older population has a very bad stigma about cannabis. And the first thing I always say is you don't have to smoke it. And, you know, you don't have to get high. And just to speak in layman terms, sometimes helps them feel a little bit better. But a lot of times, they're just so helpless that they just want hope. And that's why they're coming to me. It's unfortunate that some people use it as like a last resort where they should be using it as a supplement uh, mm -hmm. to supplement their overall health and wellness. But I think that's still left over from many, many generations uh, prior to Nancy Reagan, even before that, and Richard Nixon, all that stuff. So uh, it'll take a little bit of time to get it past that. All right. So let's let's get into the fun stuff. Stuff that I'm really curious Are we going to talk about ketamine now? Yeah, let's talk fun. about ketamine. I'm, <laughs> I, had a, I went to a ketamine lecture. This guy... Dr. Jeff explained it in a way that I've never heard anybody explain. He explained what chandelier cells are in the brain. And I never really understood this whole concept because cells, when they, when they talk, they go through a neurotransmitter and there's a synapse. And the chandelier cells are able, Michelle's nodding for those of you to know, because she's, she's like, yeah, you, you, you keep talking that, uh, let me, let me correct you, but I, all right, let, <laughs> let me see. Anyway, so very the visual, I'll just paint this visual the way I understand it. Mm 
So these chandelier cells can communicate without the synapse. And when they do, they sort of squeeze uh, the other cells and, uh, and from, from being able to form new productive memories. So a lot of people with PTSD have this rotation. And, and by the way, there's a, there are genotypes that are associated with that. They keep replaying the same movie over and over, and they have stress reactivity genotypes associated with that. So what happens is when ketamine is injected intermuscularly, the chandelier cell opens up like a flower and it assumes that that ketamine and it releases that hold. So you're able to start making, uh, you know, new memories and, and people come out of there and like, oh my God, I saw this, I saw that. But here's the challenge, I think, with ketamine, with like other substances. If you don't have somebody who's a therapist or somebody who's trained to be able to pick up on that after the fact, you're going to revert back to your same old movie. You have to be able to guide people towards that light. Michelle, do you have any? I love it. No, that's great. I mean, well, to be to be honest, ketamine has so many mechanisms, right? And there's still probably more. So, like for example, um, it obviously is an MDA receptor antagonist, right? Which is kind of in that central sensitization model, really having to do with glutamate or hyper excited neurotransmitter. So that's the main mechanism. But then, you know, it also affects our AMPA receptor, which affects BDNF. And that's our brain derived neurotropic factor. So that's how we create neurogenesis. THC, CBD also creates neurogenesis, right? And there's actually an overlap. There's been studies actually showing how ketamine and and the endocannabinoid system actually, you know, uh, correlate. And similarly, there's like 5-HT2A is our classic, you know, psychedelic receptor. And there's crosstalk between that and our CB1 receptor. So actually you can consider cannabis a psychedelic because the CB1 actually forms this dimer with uh, 5-HT2A. But either way, so ketamine has a lot of different mechanisms. But, you know, the way I put it to people is it's it's like what you're saying. It's kind of de-patterning, right? And then adapting to a new mindset. So a lot of it is that ego dissolution, getting rid of your personal narrative, kind of being unstuck. And very similar to what you're saying, you have your amygdala and your hippocampus, right? Where you have your fear response and your memories. And so there's all different ways of trying to decrease the connectivity between parts of the brain, like our default mode network. That is a place where we default to. It's where we keep our personal narrative, our story, who we are, right? Like who you think I am is what my default mode kind of presents to you. And most people need to change their default mode because they have very negative self-talk or they have, you know, fears that come up. And so the most important thing I will say with ketamine is that you have proper preparation and integration. And that's because even though it's like cannabis, it's dose dependent and there's multiple routes of administration. I like intramuscular, you can do sublingual IV, but you need to be prepared. And by prepared, I mean, first of all, you have to be in a very safe place. You have to feel confident with your physician or your therapist. And also the setting has to be, you know, one that you're able to open up in and your mindset, you have to have a specific intention. This isn't just like, let's do psycho spiritual growth and have a good time. This is what is the intention? Because I'll treat a fibromyalgia patient and what comes up during their session is they were raped, you know, and I'm treating them for pain. They never told me about that. And so clearly I need the therapist in the next 48 hours to have a therapy session with them to kind of talk about this. Because a lot of things, like one of the best books is, is a book called The Body Keeps the Score. So your body keeps the score of what has happened to you over time. You know, if you if you end up having trauma and you have 
pain in a certain place. I know it sounds ridiculous, but sometimes it's actually more of an emotional trauma that just kind of gets stuck in the body. And so you need that somatic release. That's why exercise and, and meditation is, is amazing. But ketamine really allows you to kind of dampen that default mode and open up to more opportunities or, or not to be so stuck in that perspective. And, and I also love cannabis for that reason, right? So someone can use cannabis and within five minutes, wherever they felt like they were, you know, in a specific a position where they were, let's say, stuck, they, they can just kind of open their mind, be present to that moment and out of their, their fears. So a lot of it is getting rid of emotional trauma and, and different types of suffering. It, it can help with pain, especially nerve pain. However, the, the problem is ketamine, we do it once a week for six sessions and we have a therapy session, you know, within 48 hours after to kind of discuss what comes up, set an intention for the next session. However, after those six weeks, the people who don't have therapy are more likely to relapse earlier on. And then a lot of times within three months, people start to relapse again. You know, my fear is really creating a ketamine epidemic, right? Hmm. The fact that people think that they could microdose ketamine the way that people are microdosing psilocybin is a huge issue, especially on the West Coast. People are getting the, you know, oral uh, trochees sent to their house, the lozenges sent to the house. And, you know, at home you can do it with a sitter and, you know, some guidance, but it, it's not ideal. But also we have to figure out cost-effective ways of helping people with mental illness, you know? So so ketamine is really a great tool. Again, I, I say it's not a cure. It's like a, a catalyst to kind of open up to new potential uh, opportunities in their mind, but it's really like recreating the story. And the other thing is that the therapy really is, is vital to them having longevity. And that's what we want is durable changes, right? We want to, we want to not start microdosing people on ketamine because they felt great as it was a rapid antidepressant, but then three months later they feel bad again. And so sometimes you can, you know, repeat the, like a booster every, you know, three or six months so that you have that. But the point is the skills that you're learning during the sessions are key to having it not revert back to who you were. Have you tried ketamine yet, Dr. Wiener? So I actually have very, very low dose. And to be completely honest, it was a, we, we wanted to try a group session, you know, and the reason why is because we're looking for affordable ways of helping people because there are so many people that are suffering. So we did a group session with many people. We had another physician was there who prescribed it and we had um, two different sitters and we had a few um, people who were participating. Actually, we had, we had two other physicians there and, and actually one of Len May's uh, friends who introduced us was there. <laughs> I'm not going to say, I'm not going to mention any names, but I know who it is. <laughs> my favorite people. And, uh, and, and it was, a, to, for, I did a very, very low dose. So I did 75 milligrams of a, of a trochee or a lozenge. And usually we do like closer to 200 milligrams mm. for a therapeutic <laughs> session. And I did that because we were in a group session. You know, I, I wanted to just, just kind of feel it. And, and the reason why is because, because it's one of those drugs that people really say, you can't be a physician or a therapist and understand what they're going through until you've actually felt it a little bit, mm -hmm. which is, which, you know, similar to, to cannabis. It's not like I need to take a Percocet before I prescribe a Percocet, but <laughs> going on this journey, you're having this very profound experience. And actually I had such a beautiful experience at that low dose that it actually encouraged me to start using low doses during therapy sessions, just to kind of open them up. But my session was beautiful. I had, I mean, everything about it was just like love. Like the message that I got was that love is the medicine, which is something that, you know, sounds really ridiculous from a physician, 
but that's how I felt. Like I just, I saw my, my two babies, you know, like everything was just this good, loving feeling that that's the way we should, you know, treat each other, be kind to each other, respect each other. But it was, it was kind of, you know, they say the word is ineffable, right? You can't really describe it in words. And, and I couldn't really describe in words what was happening or where I was, but it just felt like, you know, another dimension. I, I felt safe and I just had a, a very like warm feeling. So Everybody has, you know, and, and I love hearing patients' ketamine session experiences. You know, I love to see where they where they go on their trip and what they see and, and how they feel. Like I had a patient today and, and she said, I felt like I was on top of a mountain, you know, and like the world was right in front of me. I had another guy today and he was like, you made me into a man. I feel like I felt like a little boy for the past five years. So, you know, it's, it, they're so profound, but then it's what you take with it and carry on into your day so that you don't have to resort back to always doing, you know, these yeah. treatments. And just so people realize there's a big difference between the way I used to do K back in the old rave days. That is not the same way that you would consume it in an intramuscular therapeutic setting. Even the experience itself is completely different. That set and setting, as Michelle was saying, is super, super important. And having somebody to guide you through that. For me, back in the day, it was uh, more of a party drug. You take some K and take some uh, MDMA and you go out to the clubs and you know you have a good time. And I saw some people end up in what's called a K-hole where they're just in their, whatever they are in their brain. I uh, Luckily, knock on wood, I've never had that happen to me. But there definitely is a complementary, I guess, with, with cannabis and ketamine. For me personally, what I've seen, there is a definitely complementary benefit to that because a lot of things that Michelle was mentioning too, you have some areas that create pain of uh, from like cortisol and, and pH levels going up and you have uh, your immune system addressing those things. So you have these inflammation and pain. A lot of that comes from that trauma uh, where anandamide is used to be able to alleviate some of that trauma. And what we've been seeing in some of our studies is People that have different type of uh, genetic predispositions, especially on FA, which actually degrades anandamide, you can see that those people don't do as well as other people because they actually need those phytocannabinoids from THC. But anyway, not, not to go off on a tangent, I, I just think that it's really, really important to distinguish the two. And I, I know and I see this right now in LA, still to this day, people are taking ketamine recreationally and microdosing on that. And it's a completely, completely different experience when you have a, you know, a therapeutic process. And no, and you're and you're you're right about that. Like there was a study done where they blocked the CB1 receptor and ketamine didn't prevent pain. Right. So like that, that even goes to show how much maybe the, the mechanism of ketamine could potentially even affect your endocannabinoid system and anandamide levels as well. So, you know, that, that all that stuff is very interesting, even the concept of epigenetics, you know, the fact that so much can actually change over time and how can we live well and, you know, stop just trying to treat illness. You know, that, that's really that's really what it is. Like, how did we get to this point? That's what people need to use cannabis more for is we, we know it helps with chronic debilitating conditions, but how can we promote wellness and, and health prevention and disease prevention, and health promotion, and, and really kind of minimizing the state that we got in again, like this, you know, this pandemic is really just like an amplifier for everybody. Let's dive into you. We want to know more about you and your experiences. Uh, uh, so whatever you feel comfortable answering, but we have several questions that we ask our guests. First question is, 
please describe your first experience with cannabis. We already made an assumption that you have consumed cannabis. And what was that like? I would probably say that was in sleepaway camp, right? <laughs> so, so Which I camp? was, so it's camp called Golden Pointel, Camp Pointel. It's okay. like by, in Starlight, Pennsylvania. Um, so I'm from New York and we all go to Pennsylvania for a sleepaway camp. I went for 10 years. I'm a huge sleepaway camp person. I can't wait to send my kids to sleepaway camp. That's so that's, in the West coast. We don't do that. Yeah, we did. My, my daughter went to JC Shalom for like four years in a row and she loved it. All right. I'm wrong. Okay. Yeah, no, it's, it, it was, you know, it was a Jewish sleepaway camp and, you know, from the, the JCC. Um, and, and my first, and that's kind of like, that's where I learned a lot about cannabis because I, I was always around the older counselors and they had like their, their little lounge where they would hang out. And then at night when I became a counselor, we would go to this place and, uh, it was called the, either the Elmwood or the Orson. There were these two bars that we would go to at night and we would, you know, play pool and then we would make a fire and everybody would listen to Grateful Dead and, you know, like the old school music Van Morrison was a big one. And, and so I would say the first time I ever tried cannabis was probably in that little place we call it like the pit, like the little place that, that we would all hang out at night. And that's really when I realized, you know, how amazing the plant is. And obviously back then I was, you know, very, very young. I was probably in high school. And uh, now it's just amazing to think back because I am so glad that I was introduced to it because then I went to med school and then I had babies and, you know, things, things changed a lot over time. But I, the first time I think it was one of those times when I didn't get high, right? Like a lot of people say that the first time you ever try cannabis, that's the time that you'll get most high because your receptors are, you know, have never been used before by THC, but either I didn't know how to like inhale or whatever it was, but you know, the first time I didn't get high, but then I, I tried, I continued to try and I was able to, uh, learn how to, to inhale properly. I think Len's, yeah. Len's theory on this is that you, you probably just didn't, we probably just didn't inhale it. Right. I see it all the time. The, People this, blow it. They're what, like, the, <laughs> they blow it. You, yeah. They're scared. Let it, let, and then, but, but you you had a positive experience. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely had a positive experience because again, think about it. My setting is amazing. I'm at sleepaway camp. I don't have my parents around me. Nobody's going to bust me. I'm with people who are, were experienced. And then, and can, you know, camp and, and cannabis just were a thing, you know, like who, who would rather, I would rather use cannabis in, in nature, you know, outside and, and just kind of connect with everything there. The, I was in Pennsylvania. We had beautiful skies and stars and music. And, you know, that, that was like the best years of my life, I would say, sleepaway camp. So Michelle's experience with uh, having cannabis, a little bit with ketamine, she was talking about this sort of like losing your ego in some way or like, a, you know, you're, you have a default, right? But this kind of alters that default position. And I feel like in my experience, sometimes that experience of losing my ego or losing that default is a little scary. And I know I'm not alone in that. I think I was reading, um, who was it? Ashton Kusher, or maybe it was Ben. And it was Ben Affleck saying like, oh, I had ego disassociation or something like he, he had a term for it that I had never heard before. And I was like, oh, that might be what I have. But do you have, do your patients ever talk about that? And how do you sort of counsel them through that? The classic terms are ego dissolution or depersonalization. Depersonalization is like when you completely just lose, like you're outside of your body, but you also lose your ego. Like they, they, you know, like people who, when we talk about DMT and other type of psychedelics, it's kind of like, you know, when you turn into nothingness or oneness, it's kind of like similar where it's like a paradox, you know, it's like you're kind of all one with nature 
and people sometimes describe it like they're stuck in a loop, you know, like they're in this dimension where it's just continuously going on. They don't really know where they, they are. The important thing, again, is the preparation. You know, you have to know if you're going to go to that dose today, then you have to be prepared for it. And that dose can be, I've witnessed a lot of my patients, like I had one woman that I witnessed her, she was literally telling me to say, to tell her husband that she loves him. And like, that's the whole point is that you live your biggest fear. Once you live your biggest fear, then there's nothing really more to fear. And so I think, but ego dissolution is so important because the problem is once people kind of minimize their ego, then it's hard to be in society with the others who are walking around with their ego, right? So it's it's something that is extremely important for them to kind of change their default mode, how they view themselves. But once they, they've gotten to that point where they're outside of their body and they're maybe re-experiencing something that caused them trauma, then they can relive it without the emotion. So later on, let's say you get that same trigger, you know, you you hear a loud noise or whatever it is is your trigger, maybe you relive that situation during your ketamine ex- experience and the emotion isn't associated anymore with that. So it can be very therapeutic, but it can be very dangerous. And that's dangerous, meaning that I've also seen patients get very scared because they've get, gotten to that point, even when we've prepared them. And I have to remind them, you, you know, you're in this recliner, you're in my office, I'm here with you, I hold their hands, maybe we take their eye shades off, you know, to counsel them. But a lot of times, with ketamine, it's, it's medically very safe. We just actually have to breathe through it, you know, and calm their anxiety because some of their biggest fears come up. But again, that ego dissolution, that to me is like the highest state you can, you can go. John, I think I know what mistake you made. You didn't go to Pennsylvania in nature during your first experience. Coney Island. No, was I went to Nathan's and Yonkers. Yeah, it probably wasn't the best uh, <laughs> Yonkers. Yeah, it probably wasn't the best set and setting for your experience. The worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of you kind of already uh, mentioned this, Michelle, uh, music wise, but we're big music guys. So we is there a genre of music or an album or something that is uh, kind of your go to that you like to listen to? It's funny. I should have prepared myself knowing <laughs> who you are that I was going to get these questions. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a huge Dave Matthews fan. That's my thing. Like, I, I, I love Dave. I know it's like kind of like old school and but that's just my that was my time like I love Dave I I think that he's great live I love I love just I love his music I love who he plays with so you know I'm a huge Dave person I I like old school stuff you know like Van Morrison and Steve Miller Van you know that kind of stuff that was like Mm -hmm. definitely from growing up but now I've kind of like I'm open to everything like sometimes I'll listen to country you know like I'll listen to Zach Brown band or you know some some more like pop stuff but the thing is i have two kids so half the time i'm listening to like justin bieber (laughs) (laughs) that's what i have to play in my car you know and then i end up learning it and kind of liking it and you know now i kind of listen to a little bit of everything because of that Uh, bieber is a is a funny one because we still my daughter's 16 bieber is our absolute number one favorite still to this day and she was little i think maybe maybe eight or so, but she wanted to go to the Justin Bieber concert. And I was like, okay, I'll go to Justin Bieber concert with you. But first, we're going to go see a real concert. So I took her to uh, Jane's Addiction and Alice in Chains. <laughs> it was her first concert. She saw that, and she got a pick from uh, one of the guys there, and Dave Navarro blew her a kiss, and then we got to see Bieber. Uh, and we actually saw Bieber on the street and uh, with a bunch of bodyguards. And honestly, there was people like chasing like the like the Beatles. I, I see a lot of celebrities and musicians in LA, but I've never seen anybody react to a celebrity 
like they did to Bieber. There was like literally little girls chasing him. He had to get security, get him in a car, and so you could drive away. So my daughter didn't get a chance to really meet him. Oh. I, I was going to take my uh, seven-year-old daughter to Harry Styles. I was going to say was that's like, the new Bieber. <laughs> yeah, that's the new. And so that one, but then the pandemic, and we, you know, it got postponed. Probably get postponed again, but. You know, it's just it's just funny, like, like with the kids, because I'll try to expose them to some of my music when they're in the car, you know, just to kind of see if they would just go into that zone. Like sometimes I'll listen to Pink, you know, and it's kind of like it gets them like a little bit excited, motivated. But then she has some more like emotional songs. So I like to expose them to a little bit of everything. Because I know when I was young, like my, my parents listened to like Frank Sinatra and, you know, Barbra Streisand, like all those old school. But now I'm so glad that I learned some of that. I, I have a, a pretty significant album collection. My dad had one and I wasn't able to touch any albums. Couldn't touch anything. For me, I'm like, here we go. I got a record player. I, I have record players in like four different rooms in my house. I'm like, here's all my records. Go take anything. Nope, not interested. Uh, Spotify playlist. These are my favorites. I care less about that stuff. But she does listen. Like I exposed her early on to Pink Floyd and up and all that stuff so she does listen once in a while so she has more eclectic taste in her friends but there's a lot of travis scott that's being played in the in our house uh, <laughs> all right so what has cannabis meant in your life that's a good question so cannabis has been like a, an absolute savior on so many levels and the reason why is because from a career standpoint, I was I was feeling actually very stuck because I was an interventional pain doctor doing injections and I didn't wanna do injections anymore because I just wanted to help the patient from kind of like the inside out. I didn't wanna do like band-aids all day long. And, and again, like when you have an epidural and you have a disc herniation and you get better, great. And that I love that stuff too, but I felt like there was just so much chronic pain. So for me, honestly, it was a huge savior because I actually felt stuck in my career. I felt like I was going to continue down this path of doing injections and prescribing opioids and not being satisfied, not, not feeling like my biggest part of my day, all the hours spent in my day was actually helping people. And that's really what I wanted to do. So like, I'm so grateful that I lived in the time in this time when cannabis is legal in Florida. And, and that it was just the perfect time for me. Like I, I, I got it at the, at the right time and I was open to it and I was in the right private practice, not at a university, you know? So it's been, it's been a huge savior for me in terms of changing my career. And then learning so much about the endocannabinoid system has helped me just live a healthy, healthier life, right? Like I learn about, you know, exercising, increasing our endogenous cannabinoids and eating healthy. And as much as I learn and teach to patients, then I have to do it myself. So there's a huge component of connection, you know, and that's, that's a really big part of living a, a meaningful life, right? Like a lot of times we are living, but are we finding meaning in our life? And, you know, probably the, the patient that, that sticks out the most to me, is a guy that was my first cannabis patient that had vertebral fractures. And at the time I had done, you know, his kyphoplasty, which is a procedure that I would never do now because I'm so inexperienced. And, you know, I helped him with his pain and then he developed cancer and his, his daughter was unbelievable. And all throughout palliative care, all throughout his hospice, we didn't use any opioids. We didn't use any benzos. We just used cannabis in this man. And so like, there's so many stories where I was able to, really impact patients' lives and understand how they're using it at the end of their life to find meaning or during their life when they feel like they're stuck. And, 
and just having yeah. having that outlet, having that alternative, helping people when you know other people can't. Like I don't even mind those challenges, and I don't even mind if you come to me and it's your last resort because then once you feel better, you'll you'll offer to a patient, you know, or a friend or a family yeah. member earlier on. So it's really it, it thank I I'm so thankful for cannabis because it has opened my career up, but it also taught me so much about how to live a healthy, meaningful life that now I loved speaking about it so I could encourage other people. And I think it's also, you know, empowering the patient or empowering the person to kind of stop being so lazy and waiting for the physician to fix your issues. It's your life. You know, if you want to find meaning in your life, then you need to be a little bit productive and you need to to, and, and, and people say, well, I want, how many milligrams of this do I take? And I don't want to be high. It, this is personalized medicine. You're going to have to open your mouth and put it in your ma- mouth and then tell me in an hour how you feel. And if you do get high, I'll teach you ways of minimizing that, but you have to at least open your mouth. <laughs> you know, like the, the patients are like, they ju- and that's why like the FDA will have such a hard time regulating cannabis. You can't just say anyone who has neuropathic pain, here's 10 milligrams of a one-to-one. It's not going to work like that. You've been smoking cannabis for 40 years or you've never tried it at all. You have no idea your sensitivity. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm unbelievably grateful for cannabis. It's really changed my me as a person, it's changed my uh, career, and and even like opened my even my parents. My parents they wonder how like things have evolved with me, obviously. And now they send now I have an office in Boca because my parents live in Boca, and there's so many patients and and friends of theirs that you know I'm able to help. So it's you know my dad obviously wants to know more about the cannabis stocks and not really about cannabis, but you know <laughs> the whole industry is 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 affecting my family's life. My even my even my seven year old. When I became the chair of the Florida uh, Medical Marijuana Advisory Committee, my se- I, I was like I was very excited about it. And she was in the back seat, and she and my daughter was like, "Oh, marijuana!" You know, and I'm like, "Wow, you know, you're seven years, six years old at the time, and you said marijuana." So, so I teach my kids about it. I teach them about CBD, about cannabis, and why people use it so that they can relax, so that they can feel better, so that they can sleep, they have less pain. So it's it's. Really, it, it is a huge part of my life, even my family's life. Yeah, I so appreciate what you said. And and living it, there's there's such hypocrisy. I'll just tell one quick story. There's a doctor who's a very well-known cannabis doctor in California. Uh, he recommends cannabis and talks about it as an expert and talks about the endocannabinoid system. He's severely overweight and smokes cigarettes nonstop. And it was like, well, if you're going to recommend somebody, you know, plant medicine and a way to balance their endocannabinoid system, maybe you should live that life yourself and, and use that, be the example for your patients. So I really, really appreciate you saying uh, that's uh, really important. All right. So last question, kind of fun. Maybe you remember, maybe not. We have mixed results uh, from this one. Uh, This is not John's favorite question, but I still like to ask it. If you remember, please describe what your room looked like growing up. She likes the question. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. That's a good question. So I don't know if you remember the show Full House, but I had the same comfort that DJ Tanner had. It was like the, the, the white comforter with the red boxes and yellow or whatever so that that's like when I think back so I lived on Long Island and my room was over the garage and we had a basketball net against the garage so whenever my sister and my brother would play like they would always be banging it against my my room but my room was 
it had a desk. It was all white. And then I had DJ Tanner's uh, comforter in it. And it's, it's funny because at the time, my, so my mom's an interior designer. So I had all these like built-in things, you know, like the built-in with the drawer, this, the pull out, you know, underneath the bed. And, and, you know, she was like, she was really, you know, into all that stuff, but it's funny. Cause now I, I think about my daughter's room, you know, and I'm just, I'm such a, what you see is what you get type of person, you know, like I'm like less is more. Right. So like, I think about my room and it had all these built-ins and these cabinets and the desk and whatever. And like my little girl, like, you know, I, I could probably step it up a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that was my room. We had carpet because we were on Long Island, you know. Where can people find out more about you, social media, website? Uh... My website's drmichelleweiner.com. My Instagram's the same thing, Dr. Michelle Weiner. And um, I'm in South Florida. I have offices in Miami, Hollywood, and Boca. And you know, I'm really excited for the future. You know, like we always talk about the terpenes and, and uh, the entourage effect and cannabis. And, you know, I think that that ketamine is going to offer a lot for the future as well. And there's going to be much more that comes out. And the good thing is, is that with the evidence, you know, we'll be able to kind of get rid of the stigma. And so I think we're getting closer to that. And the more we talk about this, you see how many like-minded people we we run into and, and, and the anecdotes are, you know, speak for itself. So thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. Thank for you. I appreciate it. Bye guys. Bye. Bye. Take Thanks. Thanks. I want her to be my doctor, right? Do you She's have awesome, a doctor right? like that in California? We'll talk uh, offline. I mean, uh, I, I belong to an integrated medical practice mm. in which I pay monthly fee and uh, they're very, very open. We haven't started talking about ketamine yet, but I definitely have uh, doctors that work with ketamine. And look, Michelle hit the nail on the head. All these different things that we consume, they're all interconnected and they yeah. all go back to your modulating system. Pain is a result of. Anxiety is a result of. So if you follow the path, it's all connected. And a lot, there's a mind-body connection. I mean, Dr. John Sarno made a career of that. He wrote the mind-body connection and healing back pain. And he talked about when you think and you have stress, it's related to pain. And we carry our pain in different parts of our body, depending what that is. But there is a correlation between stress, between cortisol levels, between acidity, your pH level raising in your body and your immune response to that pH level. So acid, immune response, inflammation creates pain. Pain goes in, you feel pain. Where's the pain? The pain is in my ankle. You get a shot in your ankle and it feels better because you block the receptor from that transmission back to the brain, but you haven't done anything. You never right. follow why are you holistic, yeah. pain in the first place. Well, the pain comes from the stress that I have to go on vacation next week. And my wife is uh, telling me that the room is not going to be good enough. The, the seat's not going to be, so I'm stressed and it's creating that stress level increase. So I'm in, because I have a predisposition to stress reactivity and to PTSD, it's playing that movie in my, in my head over and over. And I'm not producing enough anandamide, which is my bliss hormone, which is my endogenous endocannabinoid to be able to regulate that. So all these things are connected. And 
when somebody really looks at the body in that way, the body and mind, that's really what physicians should be doing across yeah, the board. They they just with the exception the of surgeons. Yeah. With the exception of surgeons. Surgeons are precision people. They go in and they cut something out, they uh, they remove, they but everybody else needs to look at the entire body and that's yeah. the issue that they don't. And also at wellness, you know, you don't go to the doctor for wellness often. You go to the doctor when you're very sick and so they're treating a problem instead of kind of like treating it Exactly. Know. But anyway, yeah, so I, it's always great to talk to, to doctors like that who are in, more enlightened and, and open. I have a lot of doctors in my family from, from Long Island who are not really necessarily the same way. Um, so I, I, I do it all. The, uh, so, so here's an example. So I, I was on somebody's podcast or somebody's interview. Yeah, I think it was a podcast. And uh, the person posted on LinkedIn. And all of a sudden, uh, there's a lot of comments. Great. I'm glad you're talking about this, genetics. And there's a doctor who posts this comment saying, I want to caution everybody about genetics. There are no clinical trials. There's no double-blind placebo, so be careful. Uh, these claims, and it goes on and on and on. Mm. And, uh, and it's just like, okay, can you please show me where we make claims? Number two, there are over 16,000 publications in PubMed alone about cannabis. There is research. Are there a lot of double-blind placebo clinical trials? Absolutely not. There is we explain many why. reasons yeah. why. Many reasons why. But what Michelle said, being curious and being open-minded and actually saying to yourself, I want to help people. So whatever I learned in school, if you learn, uh, if you went to medical school prior to 1992, you didn't even know there was an uh, endocannabinoid system because it was just discovered in 1992. So there are new discoveries made right. all the time. How, as a physician, as a healthcare professional, you have to take CME, continue ed. How are you not curious between that one year? There's so many things that happen every single day. You go back to your books a year later, and you're going to go and you say, oh, okay, this is something new, but I don't give a shit. I'm just going to keep doing my own thing. Or are you going to say, what can I do to help my patients open my mind up and ingest as much information as possible? And you're right. That's the doctor that you want to go yeah, to. Yeah, and doctors she's against it. No. She, yeah, she's open to new things. And again, she's talking about personalized medicine. I really like that too. Where it's like, yeah. she's not going to make some generic thing where you have to take a three to three to one because you know, it's going to be personalized to your experience. And how many doctors personalize your medicine? No, they just kind of say you should be on this drug and this dose. How many doctors even, even know? Yeah, doctors don't know. You know what they count like? And I'm not painting everybody with a broad brush. A lot of doctors do know. But a lot of doctors do this. They go and they say, okay, whatever opioid or whatever uh, Percocet, is, as Michelle was saying, here it is. How much do you take? Well, it's the same dose that you take for every – talk to your pharmacist. So your pharmacist, the doctors rely on the PharmD and the pharmacist mm -hmm. to be able to better understand the medication. And the doctors – rarely look and see what other medications is this person consuming that that medication can interact with the other medication and cause a reaction. So a lot of them are lazy enough where, you know, they write a quick prescription and they say the PharmD will, will take care of it during your consultation with them. Our last, last thing on this. So in speaking of clinical trials, so a few years back, I was asked by a university uh, that was associated with a hospital to participate in an autism study. They asked if I can find CBDV. And uh, I went out, it's, it's very difficult uh, uh, cannabinoid to isolate, but I was able to isolate it. They need a chain of custody, all that stuff. 
And I was able to find it and it came back to the study and they said, uh, we can't use it. I said, why? I said, well, because the Department of Defense is sponsoring the study. Hmm. That's interesting. I thought it was a Schedule 1. What do you mean? Uh, it's the Department of Defense. Yeah. And they have a contract with GW Pharmaceuticals. So GW Pharmaceutical is the only one that could have provided that isolated molecule for the study. So even if you have studies, you have to see where the relationship is. You know, big pharma definitely has a big role in this still and with the isolated molecules. Interesting. What's your name? At the count of three, I want y'all to tell me the name of my DJ. One, two, three. I have a theory. I want to talk to you about this theory. Yes. Okay. I was listening to, I think it was LL and, and some old school hip hop. There's shout outs to DJs, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, old, there's a lot of hip hop who shouts out the DJ. It started with the DJ and the MC comes on and he's like, my DJ, my DJ, Eric B for president, right. you know? And I think now when I listen to music now, because it's all studio produced, it's missing that element of that DJ and uh, an MC. Like all the music is already produced. They don't have that DJ. Yeah, you don't have that experience anymore. Some being on the turntables playing it. Yeah, it's different. So it's producers. It's the, de produce the DJs have become producers and it's a well, different dynamic. Yeah, but that shout out, like, okay. So I want to talk to you about some of the DJs that you think uh, we can do a list or whatever. I, I wrote some down. And, yeah, and we're talking about hip hop DJs specifically here. Right? I'm sorry. Yes, yes. Hip hop DJs. So you're absolutely right because there are DJ Khalid, who is a producer, right? right. Uh, Scott Storch, who's a producer. Kind of like a DJ producer because he gets shouted out in in the songs as well. So they're making a contribution. So there's a there's a collaboration, but a lot of them they don't. They just take buy tracks from other other people like Hit Boy, etc. And they they play. So I think it changed hip hop without having this DJ present. Wanted to see if we can go through a list. Of, yeah, let's uh, do it. The... I jotted down some ideas after All right, you. I jotted down some after too. you uh, texted me about that and. I've got my feeling on this as a amateur hip hop, or maybe not even so amateur since I actually have been paid you're, to you're DJ. You're a professional DJ. I've you actually are. been paid to DJ. By I the can, way, I've I been paid to DJ too. Have I you? Used to, I used to work for Fascinating Rhythm Disc Jockeys in Philadelphia. Oh, that's awesome. I used to bar mitzvahs and all that I did that too. We have like parallel lives. <laughs> so I DJed, I had a company called The Chill Factor, and we DJ dances. In fact, at one point I had my business card that I found in an old... It was like this gold business card that says, The Chill Factor, DJ Kid Finesse, which is just so funny. But um, yeah, and as I got older, I DJed in New York and yeah, never never like made a living doing it, but certainly right. got paid. But yeah, bar mitzvahs and weddings were where it was at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love DJs, like DJs in the DJ culture. I'm, I'm not talking about hip hop in general because, uh, uh, you know, like DJ Kiyoki, all the yeah. uh, house music DJs and all those those guys, they're amazing. But I... I want to focus our conversation just strictly on that guy, like the hip hop, DJ. cool Herc, and whoever comes up and MCs over that. 
that's what I want to uh, focus on. So right. do you want to go, you want me to- Well, we, I mean, you mentioned Cool Herc. I think you have to start with Cool Herc, right? You start with the, okay. sort of the original hip hop DJ. So we've talked about Cool Herc on the show. Yes. Early 70s, the Bronx, South Bronx, and he brought a kind of sound. Um, he figured out how to play breaks back to back and didn't really do the mixing so much and did, certainly right. didn't do the scratching, but just played these break beats from, from popular records. And he was, he was imitating what he had heard uh, growing up in Jamaica in sound systems to give credit to the sound systems from Jamaica. Right. So he is the first to bring it to America as far as anybody's concerned. There's some other yeah. talk about maybe DJ um, Kaz um, and all those guys. That yeah, I would say I would say you're right about Cool Herc. And and the person who really brought it to the breakbeat model was uh, Grandmaster Flash. Right. Uh, like he, he made took that and made it into a science. I, I saw that you probably saw the same where he draws the crayon on, on the album. And it's like, right. that's where the beat is. That's and where, that's where yes, you... that's where you spin it back. Yes, I used to do that. And so he found and he figured out him and, and Grandmaster Kaz is her credit with figuring out scratching as well. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so those are the guys that played it like that's the pioneers. But from there, it was the people who created groups. Right. Right. So for me, it's uh, like Jam Master J. Yep. Uh, would be the, the next uh, iteration of that. Yep. I agree. I Jam Master J. Yes, because he's very early hip hop. He created groups and he was making those beats for Run DMC. And also a guy that I really liked when I was younger that turned out to be very influential just like on the streets before he made records was Africa Bombada because oh, he yeah. had on the list. Yeah, I'm he sure. had he was he was uh doing a lot of street parties but also kind of brought that electro that sound of like electro uh, hip hop to to the forefront where he was finding like breakbeats from like Kraftwerk. It's amazing how yeah. influential Kraftwerk was in early hip hop and in DJing, like this weird obscure German synth band. I know, um, it's a, like it's a influence like all their music, like all those beats from like Planet Rock. And if you listen to all this, it's all from Germany. So yeah, I wonder how they found that. You have to be like really digging, digging. You have to be digging deep, right? It's crazy. Some of the other ones I have, and by the way, throw them out yeah. too if if you have any. But I have, uh, and these are like my favorites. So I already mentioned Eric B mm -hmm. uh, for sure, for sure, and then Ter Terminator X. Yep, amazing. Um, public enemy. He is the public enemy. I would even go before we even get to Terminator X. I feel like there's a few early guys that I was thinking about, and and some you might be familiar with, and some you might not be. Well, first of all, it's interesting that you didn't mention Jazzy Jeff. I don't. He might be on your last list. He, no, he. I, okay, Jazzy okay. Jeff is on my list. All I'm right. So pre pre Terminator X, there's these guys. Okay, so there was this guy Davy DMX who has a record called Davy D. You are the best. Rock this beat because it is so fresh. <laughs> there's a few guys that came out with records that was just them DJing in the sort of early '80s, and and I had those records, and they meant a huge amount to me. And I think any hip hop DJ that was alive during that time, and one of this guy was named Davy DMX, um, who I believe was the DJ of uh, Curtis Blow, and mm -hmm. then another guy is this guy AJ, the who did this record called AJ Scratch, and we'll play you a little sample of that. I, I know that. I know. You know that. AJ. I want to yep. see you. So those were like really early. Um, just DJ Rick records. Rubin talks about that. I, I listened to one of his pods that he did, and he talked about it. A, 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 yeah. Because yeah. Grandmaster Flash did that record, The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash and the Wheels yeah. of Steel, which he did completely live, which was him just scratching and DJing. Mm -hmm. And then a few other artists kind of followed up with like their own. And then, you know, yeah. you're right, like Jazzy Jeff did one, Eric B did one of those. 
Um, you had to sort of do that back in the day. If you were Terminator yeah. X has one that's just like him doing his thing, right? Yep. I love those records so much. Yeah, they don't those, do those constant anymore. scratches. No, yeah. they don't do that anymore. Yeah. And then you have, and then the one that came to mind when I was listening, uh, Cock Creator. Yeah. Uh, who's my, what my DJ name? Cock Creator. Yeah, Cock you know, Creator, like, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so all these guys were, they were all inventing <laughs> DJing and reinventing it and coming up with new beats. And I feel like Jam Master J was sort of the beginning of the producer DJ, right? Yeah. Like the it's DJ like the DJ was... Premier, Marley yep. Marl, like those guys yeah, became were the premier. next generation, right. I think, of those. Right? Then there was like, well, see, I don't, and I don't know how familiar, because you grew up in Philly, and I don't know if this was, right. but, but there was a whole generation of DJs on the radio that were hip-hop DJs that... At least when I was growing up in New York in the in the mid '80s, like Stretch and Bobito, uh, like, like um, the, the... well, there was guys like um, DJ Red Alert, and yeah, of course, and right, and Chuck Chill Out, and I think that their yeah. shows were syndicated, but they were coming out of New York radio stations, and they only played on Friday and Saturday nights, and that was the only place if you didn't live like, you know, in the South Bronx where you could hear hip hop, and it was the only radio stations weren't playing it during the day. So you had to you had to stay there with your like finger on the record and pause button to record hip hop. It was the only place to hear it uh, for me. And so yeah, so yeah. D- big shout out to DJ Red Alert. And you can Absolutely. find all these shows on YouTube, and it's so fun to listen to them. And DJ Chuck yeah, Chill Out DJ, was the other guy. Yeah, DJ Mr. Red Magic. Alert was big. Mr. Magic, yep, yep, yeah. So I all those guys. Biggie doesn't Biggie talk. Uh, this Biggie about loves Mr. Magic. Mr. Magic was a Marley Marl, yeah, big Mr. pain Magic in the ass. Well, he was Marley Marl. Marley Marl was Mr. Magic's DJ. Yeah, Mr. Magic was like the guy who talked like this, man. Yeah. You know, and then you had Marley Marl, who was the DJ, and then he went on yeah, to become yeah. a really good producer. So yeah, yeah. so you had those guys. Like you had 90s. yeah, DJ. You had Premier. Yeah. Then you Love. had Kid Capri. Huge. I would say. Yeah. Right. You said Eric and P. What do you think about Pete Rock? Like, because it was Pete Rock and Seal Smooth. Do you consider Pete Rock as a DJ? People think Pete Rock as a DJ, and I. It's interesting. My son just brought up Pete Rock the other day. I guess he's got a new record out. He's still doing his thing, Pete Rock. He's like premiere, like he's just never died. Right. And that song Reminisce with CL Smooth and Pete oh, Rock. Yeah. Yep. I mean, can give me a break. It's like one of the greatest rap records ever made. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think he's the real deal. I don't know how much producing he does versus DJing. And you're right, like once they put a ban on using samples and you had to pay all this money, that kind of put a dent in what DJs could do. They couldn't just sit there anymore and like play, you know, James Brown records and, you know, old school um, records they they weren't allowed to do that anymore so it kind of they had to become uh, producers and make their own right. beats and their own sound so it kind of changed the whole deal but yes Pete Rock was great in both eras when you could play the the break beats and not get sued and then when you had to remake new new beats right, right. I think the the next generation from there and I probably am skipping people but we can go back to that is the era of like Dr Dre yeah because Dr Dre was like Okay, it's a, he's a DJ, but he's a contributor. He's also obviously rapper, he's he's rapping, like, uh, producer, all that stuff. It was like the multi-talent, and that's the, I think. And I don't know this for a fact, but I think that's this is where Khalid and uh, and Scott Store. A lot of these guys got their influence from the, the stuff that uh, Dre was doing. For sure, Dre was doing it. Even um, Q-Tip was oh, making his own beats, right, and producing. For sure. And I was going to ask you about what you felt uh, about Q-Tip. Is that because I've seen him DJ too? He DJs. Yeah, yeah. It's like you don't think of it because he had his own DJ in uh, Tribe Called Quest, but he also DJs. Like I've seen him like on the turntables doing his thing. I, I've seen the Beastie Boys DJ too. Yeah, so that's I, true. I wouldn't consider him DJs. <laughs> My D, but I wouldn't consider. Him I know it's DJ. funny. I guess everybody kind of does it. 
but I agree. It's easy now. I think those guys are huge influence. And you mentioned the Beastie Boys. One of my favorite DJs ever is Mixmaster Mike. Mixmaster Mike, of course. I it's 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 Hurricane and Mixmaster Mike. Right. Love that. Yeah, yeah, I love. And uh, one time I heard Mr. Mixmaster Mike. I went to a show, and I'm sure you probably went to this show back in the day too. I think the Beastie Boys did an intergalactic. Uh, it was whatever that. It was a Hello Nasty tour. Mixmaster Mike did this mix that I've never forgotten, where he mixed Rush's tom sawyer it was the first time i'd ever really heard a dj mix like scratch stuff that wasn't hip-hop like was actually taking yeah. rock breaks at the time it, it was like revolutionary i was like i remember sitting there in like the wherever that place is in new jersey and i was like holy f this is like the best thing i've ever heard in my life he was playing the beginning of tom sawyer like ding, ding, ding. yeah yeah I've heard him do shows before where he comes in and has the the opening act for somebody else who's yep. the MC and he does his whole DJ show and I've seen him uh, do that in, in Hollywood a couple times. Yeah. He's the best. Michael Schwartz, by the way. Oh, he is? See, I thought Mixmaster Mike was a Latin. I didn't realize that he was a fellow tribe member. Just That's saying. pretty cool. Have you ever heard that um, voicemail where he calls the Beastie Boys up and he's trying to get them to put them on his record and they have a whole like voicemail of him saying like, yeah, my name is Mike and I'm, and I'd love to be on your record. I don't know. It's, it's pretty awesome. Sounds familiar. I, I don't Yeah, I, I don't feel like it that. might be on one of their records. I have to find that. Uh, mugs. I would throw mugs in there yeah. uh, because he did, he did a lot of work with a lot of those bands like Funk Dubious, you know, besides Cypress Hill, all those other and bands. Because we love Cypress Hill and big up to yes. be real. Be real. Who will yeah, always be I, a legend in our minds. Always, yeah. That was, <laughs> I'm just, I'm still like, you know, like we just shaking. Post from... that. Yeah, that, that incredible feedback. I am just so Yeah, like, so and fan. Muggs is the best. And then what about Spinderella? I know. I was thinking we got to put some female DJs up in this. I mean, Spinderella might have been the first, like one of the first female DJs, right? I mean, she's yeah. like, early there's jazzy joyce i think there was a woman name but um yeah spinderella man i mean i i don't know who else she had a and she had her own spinderella song yeah i mean there's not been that that has been it's been quite misogynistic the dj field and in fact i just did a podcast i mentioned before about um the history of the dj we were hard pressed to find women djs to celebrate there's a few that are out now, apparently. This guy was telling me there's a few like kind of like Dutch female DJs that are tearing it up. Um, and Are, like, are they like, hip-hop DJs? Or they're not they hip-hop. Just... So, so, yeah, but the... yeah, a female hip-hop DJ, I mean, it's it's not, there's not many. Is, is MC Light a I DJ? Mean, she she wasn't a DJ. She had no, a DJ. No, not really, right? Yeah, she, she had, had a DJ. DJ. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. If, it was. A, I don't know of anybody. It was a burning hole in the... And why is that? Why, why are women not on the turntables it's or, or maybe we just don't know I, I, this is I so think everybody we know. i mean i feel like queen latifah didn't have a female dj no, i mean did she no. uh, not that i remember 
nobody that you would know. Nobody I mean, I think know. Jazzy Joyce is the only one that besides Spinderella that I ever heard of. I know. I mean, so it's, if it's, anybody it's out there knows female DJs and it's specific from in hip hop, from hip hop now and, and from back in the day, I feel like besides, like you're saying, Jazzy Joyce and um, Latifah, I can't think of one other female. Yeah, somebody, DJ. somebody told me DJ rap. And I think I remember I even had like a, some sort of CD from DJ rap, but I don't, I don't remember the music. Why would that be that there weren't female DJs back? In I've the seen Erica Badu DJ. Does that count? <laughs> I love Erica Badu. Mazzy star DJed. Um, no, I don't know. I mean, Eric, I feel like Erica Badu is an, is an R&B artist. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess sure. you could DJ, you could technically get on the, I mean, my wife always tells a story about how she one time stumbled into a New Year's Eve party and, Lou Reed was DJing. Like, well, she wasn't invited to this party. It was just in the wrong apartment. And she, right. she said Lou Reed was DJing. That was like the most. Fuck. So, I mean, everybody DJs, right? That's yeah. one of the problems with being a DJ is that everybody can do it. So you can't be like, I'm a DJ. You'll be like, dude. I well, can't. yeah, it's like Paris Hilton is a DJ. Yeah, that's and annoying. Like, oh, yeah, it's I'm laughing. But but apparently she's like a real popular DJ. Thing. I mean, does she uh, know how to DJ? Well, <laughs> Do you need to know how to DJ nowadays? The thing is, not, I guess you, you don't know now anymore. But I mean, I I was pretty purist. Like I know how to mix. I knew how to beat yeah. match. I knew how to cut and scratch. I doubt. I mean, listen, I'm all you had your technique twelve hundreds. You had your. Techniques. I had my techniques. Yeah. They're they're actually sitting here to my side. I had all that stuff. I used to lug my records around. But anyway, I was I was serious about learning how to mix. I know that now people don't even learn, don't even know how to do that. And of course, the technology now makes it a lot easier to do that. It matches the beats for you and does a lot of stuff. But um, yeah, to me, you have in order to be a real DJ, you have to know how to do that stuff. Well, you I think what you should do, you should there. record yourself like a little YouTube video and show people what is the basics of DJing. Because I think that with all the vinyl, now vinyl is big again. I think people are going to start going back to the uh, old school and, and really learning how to how to match beats. And it's it's a it's not it's, it's a, a it's lost, lost art for sure. I was never right. very good at it, even though I spent hours and hours and hours and hours practicing. I used to be so jealous when I would listen on the radio. I'd be like, "How are they doing that? How are they getting it so perfect?" I know. I did the same thing. I I I love the practice though. It was so oh, much was fun. fun to play yeah. records. But uh, yeah, I can never. I was never that good at it either. Have a have you heard? Okay. And I want to talk about this. By the way, what shirt are you wearing? My I'm, you know what? I'm wearing my Sugar Hill. I think I've worn this before. I've really got to update my shirts. This is uh, a crisis almost situation. You've got your maiden on. I may have wore this yeah, before I mean, too. I feel but... like with quarantine, I can't just run out and buy like cool shirts like I used to anymore. So now I got a, a cool DJ shirt. I got to find shirts. In fact, I've got some ideas for shirts I want to order. Um, yeah, you can order based them on my yeah, based on my uh, my interests, and this and this gives me a reason because now I'm actually being held publicly accountable for having <laughs> terrible shirts. <laughs> I, I just love maiden shirts because I think they're just so in your face. Like, and also get it offended. takes. I see that, and I immediately am in back to like fifth grade or whatever okay. seventh grade. Like everybody used to wear those shirts back in the hey, day. You got, you got Eddie. I mean, like yeah. how you? I walk around with a with a maiden shirt. I have a couple of them, but. Uh, walk around and either people are like they look at you weird like oh look at this guy he's got like a skull in it or people are like yeah man throw you the rock horns and you know what nobody shirt. ever wears anymore that were so popular when we were growing up with those 
shirts like Iron Maiden, but they would be like the baseball with like with the one the colored sleeves, oh, yeah. Yeah. right? And they would always have the concerts on the back, like you know. The, I have a bunch the of the Iron Maiden tour, and it would be like <laughs> you know Chicago. It's the, it's the, it's the uh, three quarter sleeve. Yeah, the I three quarter sleeves. I used to have. I had a police one for a while. I mean, yeah, they, they we got to bring those back. If I had probably hung on to those, they'd probably be worth a little bit, a pretty penny. Oh, you got to see what they're selling these shirts for now. It's crazy. So I, so I have a shirt. Before I got divorced, and I, I left a whole bunch of my stuff in the old house. I used to have the shirt, but there's a band called Citizen Dick. Are you familiar with Citizen Dick? I am not, but it sounds like the story right. of my life. <laughs> so Citizen Dick is a uh, Cameron Crowe-derived uh, band. It's from the movie called Singles. Okay. So Singles was a movie about like a band in Seattle, and it's a love story. But right. they made this band with guys from uh, Pearl Jam, and there was uh, uh, some Alice in Chains guys, and, and the lead singer is uh, Matt Dillon. Oh, nice! And they had a, they had a, it's a made-up band, right? But it was like a real band for the movie. I had, a, I had a shirt, and I was like, "Yeah, it's cool." Citizen Dick, and nobody knows. And I lost that shirt, whatever I gave it. I went to replace it. I went on uh, eBay. It was three hundred dollars. Holy shit! I went three hundred dollars for it. I'm like, fuck! Damn it! Could you, you know? And it's like at that point, you'd probably were like, you know, this got some sweat stains. I'm throwing this away, and you're like, who knew? I mean, Don't when I went to Japan, shirts. when I went to Japan, they were selling like shirts that I remember from the '90s. You know, they were selling. Uh, it, it was incredible what you get at vintage stores just for like stuff that was. It, but it had to be from the '90s, and uh, that just made me crazy. There were so many things that I owned in the '90s. I should have kept my onto my rollerblades for crying out loud. Um, I have a pair somewhere. <laughs> I, I skates are back in. I skate. Yeah, I've with, seen uh, some people wearing. Skates. Yeah. I really struggled with which song from this artist to share because there's two that I really I, I like a lot. But this is my new favorite hip hop artist. It's interesting. I'll just leave it at that. OS OS, look. I eat beats, watch me dining, shining. I illuminate the rooms that I'm in, timing. Loki ain't more crucial than alignment. That's why the flow is intertwined with both and I'm defiling. Every beat I'm on, even though I know it's wrong. To treat rappers like a napkin after I pissed on commodes. Then I wipe us on the toilet, can't decipher if you know. That my life is tied to giving hoodlums life despite the hoes. That their sights are fixed upon and give them pipe out of control. But the plight we abide in has almost wiped our frontal lobe of our heritage. Rare kids like me who grew up savage, they got embarrassed when they went to they partner crib and seen they mattress had a bed frame. Shout out to those who told me Toby was a pet name. Toby Chuku Dubin Wikwe is my correct name. Praise God for follies of my colleagues that embody everything I overcame blowing that ganji to suppress pain. All right. That's dope. I like that. The guy's name is Toby Wigwe. I may have butchered his name, but he said in the song what his full name is. Uh, he's a Houston guy. I heard a couple of songs that I dove deep into his catalog. Apparently he's got a shitload of songs. He's got this amazing song with black thought from the roots uh-huh. and uh, Royce, the five nine, who I think I played once. So uh, he did an Eminem song. Uh, it's called father figure. It is what hip hop should be. And I probably should have played that. But the reason why I didn't want to play that is because we only get snippets and you wouldn't hear all. Right, that's the problem. Black. You got to hear black thought on that song i mean that is true hip-hop it doesn't matter what the beats are the beats are cool but it's all about and for those of you who can't see the video every single one of tobey's uh songs he 
plays all the lyrics. All the lyrics to everything he says are flashed on the screen during the video. So you can actually go along and read because a lot of this hip hop today, I don't understand what they're saying. Like right. I can't, it's all audio. Yeah, you can, you can hear it. You can, you can see it. Every single word you can see. And it articulates. Yeah, articulates. Yeah. He's and good. He's an interesting looking guy. That Houston, shout out to Houston. There's not been a lot of, uh, that I'm familiar with, a lot of hip hop acts. Besides the Ghetto Boys, I'm not even sure that I know much uh, Texas hip hop, but Toby Wigway. Shout is out. The guy. Now it's, it's my you. turn. Christian. No, they're no longer Christian. They no longer follow Jesus. They follow the devil 100%. I think that might be the first rap record I've ever heard that samples a klezmer. It sounds like yeah. a Jewish klezmer song, which I thought was really creative. I was like, man, how did I not think of that first? <laughs> so there's a song, and I, I actually want to talk to you about this and maybe in another episode. There's a song called Mazel Tov oh, by man. IDK and ASAP Ferg. Okay. I listened to it yesterday, and I asked a couple of people, is this offensive? So I'm not going to okay. go into too much detail. We're already towards the end of the show, but maybe on the next show, I'd love to get your opinion. Maybe I'll share the song with you. In share advance, with me. I won't listen to discuss it, it. And I'll be like, no, 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 let's no listen to it in advance because I okay. want to, I want to discuss it in advance because I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I felt about it. Interesting. I had an instinct that it was like, oh, I'm offended, but then I just started listening to music. I like the music. So I'm not, I'm not sure if uh, I was like overly sensitive to it, or maybe I just didn't understand it. All right. Well, this has been a full show, man. I mean, people get, they get their money's worth and they don't even spend a dime for this show. You got expert advice from Dr. Michelle Weiner. Then you get yeah. some commentary on DJs, hip hop DJs, and then, and then some, some have you heard. I mean, it doesn't get much better. Yeah. One thing I want to leave the audience with is my book. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm making cannabis personal. So I was just asked by my publisher to mention it. I, I never mention it. I, I'm the worst self promoter, but I'm doing the pre order. So it's on slash making cannabis personal. Uh, making cannabis personal is the name of the book. So I urge everybody, and if you don't forget, just uh, send us a. Well, note. and we'll, we'll link to that website in the description so you can pre order it. Make it we'll make it easier for you. And we are definitely, I know you You are very good about not being whatever. You You have some, uh, you're the opposite of Donald Trump. You have some, uh, you don't like to <laughs> brag and talk about yourself. But you know what? I love to have you as my guest on this show and on other shows to talk about your book because I think it is interesting and uh, you certainly have a wealth of experience and knowledge. So we will do that. When the book comes out, we will have a formal interview with you uh, oh, on this show. Funny. And and I'm not going to make you 
embarrassed about nah, promoting nah, yourself. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I, I, right. I'll just watch old Donald Trump tapes. And yeah, yeah. Just be like, I'm the best. I am the greatest. This is my book. It works. Got him elected. All right. Well, brother, everything is personal. Thank you all. Thank Everyone. you all. Great seeing you, everybody. Do you remember that old DJ that used to be on LA radio that would, would, would send you out with a bong hit? Remember that guy? That, did you ever listen to that no, guy, Tom? No. Uh, he used to be like, people would be like, send me out with a bong hit. And we'd be like, so I might, I might have to do that um, that sound effect. I can, I can record it for you if you want. <laughs> exactly. You can record recording. it and I'll just put it in my uh, <laughs> system. But anyway. All right. Peace out, everybody. All right. Peace. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.